Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to the 73rd Emmy Awards. I'm Cedric the Entertainer. Look at this room, man. So many talented people in here. Matter of fact, lock the doors. We're not leaving until we find a new host for Jeopardy in here somewhere. <laughs> you know, it actually feels amazing in here. Unlike what Seth was talking about, it feels good. We all vaxxed. We had to get vaxxed to come here. You know what I mean? I got vaxxed. I did not have a reaction like Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend, okay? <laughs> Man, I got Pfizer, you know what I'm saying, because I'm bougie, all right? <laughs> Pfizer, that's the Neiman Marcus of vaccines, you know what I mean? And then Moderna, that's Macy's, and then uh, Johnson & Johnson, that's, that's TJ Maxx, of course, you know. Some of the stand-up last night from the host of the Emmy Awards, Cedric the Entertainer, as Ted Lasso, The Crown, and The Queen's Gambit all win top awards. We will have more ahead on streamings. Big night. We're also looking ahead to another pivotal week for President Biden with a key speech at the United Nations General Assembly following a series of setbacks at home and abroad. And the latest with the pandemic, a stark development out of Alabama, where overall deaths in 2020 outnumbered births, a gap for the first time ever. Good morning and welcome to Morning Joe. It is Monday, September 20th. President Biden will address the United Nations General Assembly tomorrow, his first since taking office. It could amount to a major test of his presidency as some of America's closest allies look to see whether U.S. foreign policy has really changed since Donald Trump left the White House. Tomorrow's speech comes on the heels of a series of setbacks for the Biden administration on Friday. First, the Pentagon announced that a drone strike targeting terrorists in Afghanistan late last month mistakenly killed 10 civilians, including seven children. An FDA advisory panel overwhelmingly voted against a proposal to give a third Pfizer COVID vaccine dose to the general population. The booster shot was only approved for seniors or high-risk groups. And finally... France recalled its ambassador to the United States in protest over President Biden's decision to provide nuclear power submarines to Australia. We'll get into all of that. The trio of bad headlines comes just as the White House was coping for a reset for the president after a tough August dominated by the tumultuous Afghanistan pullout and rising COVID cases. The administration had hoped to pivot back to his domestic agenda, which has been jeopardized by some members of his own party. White House aides have also discussed curtailing Biden's travel after the U.N. speech amid fear that the president, who received his second vaccine dose in January, could risk exposure to the virus. With us, we have White House reporter for the Associated Press, Jonathan Lemire, who was up way too early for us, U.S. national editor at the Financial Times, Ed Luce, and columnist and associate editor for the Washington Post, 
David Ignatius joins us this morning. Good to have all of you this morning. Jonathan Lemire, uh, Friday afternoon, uh, you you traced Joe Biden's uh, problems. Just a, a dreadful hour or two uh, that he's obviously going to be dealing with for some time. Talk about those things that fell one after another against the president. Sure, Joe. First of all, uh, it comes against the backdrop of a moment when the White House really, as Mika just read uh, from my story this weekend, that they wanted to reset things, to focus on the domestic agenda again. They had a tough stretch there, though the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the evacuation certainly became more of a success story. Those tumultuous images of those first days uh, and the exploded terrorist attack uh, have, have dogged this White House to this point, even though public opinion still supports the withdrawal as a whole. And then we also, of course, have had weeks worth of rising COVID cases. And on Friday, just as the president was going for a long weekend at his beach house in Rehoboth to finally get a break uh, after his summer vacation was scuttled by the Afghanistan crisis, three things happened within an hour of each other. Stunning headlines, one after another. First, the Pentagon acknowledged that, yes, a drone strike had not killed ISIS-K fighters, but rather 10 civilians, including seven kids. The last mm. drone strike of the Afghanistan war went awry and resulted in tragedy. Second, the FDA panel said that only seniors and only high-risk groups would be authorized for the third shot, the COVID booster shot. The administration had hoped that all Americans, 16 and up, would be declared eligible. And then lastly, yes, another escalation in what has become a rather tense situation with our oldest ally, France, uh, as French as the French recalled their ambassador uh, to the U.S. over uh, the deal the U.S. and the U.K. made to supply Australia with nuclear power submarines, scuttling the French's uh, agreement uh, with Australia. And certainly tensions remain high. President Biden hoping to speak to President Macron uh, in the coming days. And now we have the president coming to New York and the United Nations this week, where he's going to try to try to stabilize the situation, get the world to rally around vaccines and to reassure these allies that, look, you know, just a few months ago when President Biden was in Europe, he met with these European leaders who praised him as a return to normalcy, as a return to stability. Right. And now they're wondering if that's the case. Yeah, David Ignatius, uh, the French uh, complained that uh, friends don't treat friends the way the United States treated France. You look at uh, the behind-the-scenes machinations uh, with, by, between the Americans and the Australians, uh, and you see that the French were kept in the dark until the very end, that they were going to lose uh, an extraordinary, uh, generous uh, defense contract with the Australians. Uh, and one wonders why this was handled the way it was, why our oldest ally wasn't let in on these discussions earlier. Joe, I think this was a self-inflicted wound for the, the Biden administration. The French should have understood that there was a problem with their $66 billion subcontract with Australia. The Australians had been complaining. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison went to Paris in June, uh, largely to inform the French that this, these subs were too expensive and were underperforming. But I think the administration should have paid more attention to the fact that you can't have a coherent strategy for, for Asia, for the Pacific, that doesn't in some way address Europe and, and especially France. France has got island possessions there. It, it conducts freedom of navigation operations. It does all the things that we'd want an ally to do. I think that's part of why the French were so hurt and stung by this decision. They feel like they're ally and they got dissed. 
uh, recalling their ambassador. I can't remember the time a French ambassador was recalled from Washington. Uh, uh, presumably, the French are looking for President Biden to say something when he calls French President Macron to reassure the French to in some way underline that they are a crucial ally to solve wounded feelings. But the reason this is important, Joe, is it goes to the core thing that Biden is selling the world, selling Americans, which is that this is a competent administration. It doesn't make mistakes. It rebuilds alliances. It solves COVID. It goes right to the problem. It knows what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the fixers after the breakers. Uh, of, of the Biden of the Trump administration, and I, I think that's why uh, last Friday the series of things that Jonathan Lemire listed uh, hurt so much is because it goes to this core competence issue, which Biden's got to to make uh, more believable to Americans, but also to the world. So, uh, Ed Luce, I mean, is this telling us a little bit about Biden's foreign policy um, and focusing right on the problem? It seems to be all about China. Yeah, it is all about China. Um, I mean, I think the Europeans, um, the early stages of the Biden administration, when, when he said America is back, they were sort of thinking of a more conventional transatlantic Cold War world um, in which the Americans would see Europe as the primary theater of action. Um, when, of course, uh, the Indo-Pacific has always been Biden's priority China rivalry with China and maybe in a better world cooperation with China is America's number one uh, foreign policy goal under Biden. And that is very much a bipartisan consensus. So I think I think was probably some European misreading um, of Biden's priorities there. Um, the Biden administration's frustration with Europe is that for the most part, other than France, and I'm talking here about the European Union, uh, it doesn't really see the Indo-Pacific in strategic terms. It sees the Indo-Pacific, and particularly China, as a commercial challenge. And Germany wants to sell uh, more of its products to China, and that's Germany's foreign policy priority. It should be really emphasized. Germany has an election, a very important general election coming up this weekend. They've had three debates of the leaders of the party including one last night, in which this oddly named AUKUS deal, Australia-UK-US deal, didn't come up. And the French protests that Biden has insulted Europe didn't come up. So clearly the Germans don't interpret a lost French contract as a lost European contract. They see it as a lost French contract. And, and I think that's, that's going to limit the degree to which the French are able to, that Macron is going to be able to push for what he calls European strategic autonomy. It would mean nothing without the Germans. It has to be paid for. And the Germans don't seem to be interested. So that's a French problem, but it's also a Biden administration problem. They haven't got European buy-in on the Indo-Pacific yet. Yeah, David Ignatius, I certainly understand the Australians have been frustrated with uh, the, 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 the contract, the French contract that it was, as it was moving along. But was there not a better way to do this? Am I being naive? Or if you're the United States and your oldest ally and uh, an ally that's absolutely critical uh, in, in all parts of the globe uh, is about to be cut out, don't you bring them to the table with the Australians and yourself and say, we have a problem here and this is the direction we're moving? 
instead of letting them find out after the deal is gone and they've lost $60 billion. The way it came down uh, made this uh, a crisis more serious than it needed to be. I'm not sure, Joe, that there's a good way to compromise something like this. There's there's a fork in the road. You can't really mix two submarine procurement programs. You're either going to go with the French uh, offer for diesel-powered submarines that are pretty noisy, that uh, can't stay submerged as long as you'd like, or you're going to take another fork in the road, which is this very modern uh, nuclear-powered submarine system that the United States has only shared technology on with Britain. It gives Australia a special place, but it also addresses what I hear increasingly is the fundamental concern about our strategy in the in the Indo-Pacific, which is that Chinese missiles against surface ships are now so accurate that our aircraft carrier task forces, all the power that we imagine might be part of confronting China in some future war, is of increasingly limited value. So, so having a key Asian ally, Australia, uh, with a weapon system that from the stealthy underwater position can, can, can go after the Chinese was a big deal. And it's hard to blend that system with what the French were offering. I think that's the problem. That said, the administration claims that this was Australia's job. They're breaking the contracts, not an American contract, uh, and it was their responsibility to tell the French, and so they're kind of putting, putting it off on, 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 the, on the Aussies. Uh, but huh. uh, looking back on this, th this was unnecessary collateral damage. Yeah. A former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike Mullen, says there is nothing unusual about the reported conversations between General Mark Milley and his counterparts in China during the waning days of the Trump administration. Take a listen. Having uh, communications with counterparts around the world is routine, and even having them now uh, with China. I think it was also overseen, uh, certainly listened to by many other in the in the interagency process, so Milley was not there by himself. What's a little bit alarming to me, though, is that the Chinese would read the situation uh, as they did, as really chaotic, and as if we were going to possibly strike. It's very clear, and I don't know this because I haven't talked to Chairman Milley. It's very clear he had good intel uh, that this was the case. But the misread by China is also worrisome, and it speaks to the need to have these open communications so that we don't miscalculate. The Milley conversations were revealed in the new book, Peril, by veteran Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. The two will be joining us here on Morning Joe tomorrow. And we look forward yeah, to that. That'll be great. Uh, but, you know, Jonathan Lemire, uh, based on their reporting, it wasn't just Milley uh, that was uh, talking to his counterparts in other countries or China. There were four or five other principals, uh, some of whom uh, clothed themselves in the Trumpiest of, 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 of uh, appearances uh, that were quietly going behind the scenes as well, talking to their counterparts in China. 
Certainly. And Defense Secretary Esper, we know, also encouraged such conversations. There was a this underscores just this real sense of of instability and even fear uh, among the highest levels in the Trump administration about what the then the then president would do uh, in the aftermath of the election and then the January 6th insurrection that that uh, the number of people said they felt they saw real decline in Trump's behavior and stability uh, that he couldn't perhaps be trusted. And I think it's Milley's point there where he not only warned the Chinese, but then told, according to the book, his senior aides to say, look, if a process starts where the president authorized a nuclear strike, yes, that that is the president's authority, but you need to make sure I'm part of the process. And he made them all swear an oath, which was clearly an effort to try to mm. head it off at the pass, uh, whether or not, you know, if the president were to go down that road. He certainly did not. Uh, but yes, these are routine. Uh, routine may be a bit much, but these are not out of the yeah. ordinary conversations for U.S. officials to have with their counterparts, particularly uh, a rivals like China. Uh, but certainly no. it does show concern as to where things were going uh, nine months ago. It does. But I mean, that, to act like this is some extraordinary moment uh, for one, uh, an American general to talk to his counterparts or for CIA directors or for secretary of states to make sure that things are calm on the other side. That happens an awful lot, David Ignatius. And in, your, in a column you wrote on this, you say, uh, we seem to be missing the bigger point by just focusing on General Milley. Well, I'd say two things, Joe. First, I did some reporting to see just how often uh, this kind of consultation uh, happens with foreign nations. And I, I came up with an almost identical example to what Milley did, uh, done by his predecessor, General Dunford. Uh, in 2018, the Russians were holding the World Cup in Moscow, and they got, got very jittery. Uh, they, did, they worried that there'd be some incident that would d disrupt this deliberately. And uh, Dunford called his Russian counterpart, Valery Grasimov, and, and, and we ended up canceling or delaying a NATO exercise that had been planned for, the, for that time. On this question of the larger group within the Trump administration who were quietly and visibly really setting guardrails against erratic, dangerous actions by President Trump, I think this is, remains one of the real untold stories of the last couple of months of the, of the administration. But by my reporting, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, uh, until he left, uh, Attorney General William Barr, certainly CIA Director Gina Haspel, were taking steps to make sure that the president didn't do things that would destabilize the country, that would put us in dangerous situations. The problem is, I mean, I, I think every single thing that was done by by those three people, by by Milley, uh, were, were helpful for the country and our security, but. Under our Constitution, these people didn't have authority to set their own policy. Uh, we have a strong executive branch on, under the Constitution. We have a commander-in-chief. And you don't uh, set up an alternative policy. If you can imagine generals trying to decide, well, we know better than General uh, President Biden. We're going to set guardrails for President Biden. People would be offended. So there is a real constitutional issue here. I don't think Milley did anything wrong. I think we really owe him a debt of, of thanks. But there's something worth thinking about here for the future. 
David Ignatius, thank you very much. And still ahead on Morning Joe, how some of the service members killed in a terror attack during the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan were remembered over the weekend. Plus, amid heightened security on Capitol Hill, only a very small pro-Trump crowd turned out for a far-right rally. Also this morning, new reporting on how some of the largest and most powerful accounting firms in the United States have perfected a behind-the-scenes system to promote their own interests in Washington. And just a note on this Monday morning, Joe's newest podcast is available now. The new episode features David Byrne of Talking Heads fame. It's amazing. Byrne's hit show, American Utopia, took home two Emmys last night out of six nominations. You can listen to the Joe Scarborough podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Morning Joe is back in a moment. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations. And they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. 23 past the hour. Some of the stories making headlines this morning. Authorities say they may have found the body of missing 22-year-old Gabby Petito in a national park in Wyoming. Petito's disappearance attracted national attention after her fiancé returned home from a months-long van trip without her. According to the FBI, remains were found at a campground in Bridger Teton National Forest near Grand Teton National Park. Petito's mother said she had planned to visit the park last month. Meanwhile, investigators in Florida are looking for Petito's fiancé, Brian Laundrie, who was named a person of interest in her disappearance last week. His family told police on Friday they had not seen Laundrie since last Tuesday. We'll be following this. Memorials were held in California on Saturday for three of the 13 U.S. service members killed in the bombing outside the Kabul airport in Afghanistan last month. 
in Roseville, just outside Sacramento. Family and friends gathered to honor Marine Sergeant Nicole Gee. Her family described her as a bright light who loved making a difference. A picture of the 23-year-old was widely shared online, showing her cradling an Afghan baby in her arms, in which she captioned the photo, I love my job. In Palm Spring, in Palm Springs, Marine Corporal Hunter Lopez was laid to rest after a three-day celebration of his life. Thousands paid respects to Corporal Lopez and his family, a fellow Marine who was with the 22-year-old before he died, described how they were helping to save children at the airport who were being crushed by the crowds. And in Riverside, thousands gathered to remember Marine Lance Corporal Kareem Nakui. His family said the 20-year-old talked about being a Marine for as long as they could remember. His sister said they saved three families at the airport and was helping to save a small child when the bomb went off. All three families of these, all these Marines were less than four years old when the war in Afghanistan began, if you can imagine that. And on Capitol Hill, Senator Joe Manchin has reportedly suggested pausing discussions over the Democrats' $3.5 trillion spending package until 2022. People familiar with the matter tell Axios Manchin was speaking to a group of Procter & Gamble employees in West Virginia last week when he said he wanted to push discussions until next year. Manchin has publicly suggested a strategic pause in talks over the legislation but hasn't publicly suggested a specific timeline. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are pushing to vote on the budget reconciliation package this month. Meanwhile, the Democrats' attempt to include immigration changes in the spending bill was rejected by the Senate parliamentarian, according to a document obtained by NBC News. Senate rules only allow measures related to taxing and spending to be included in reconciliation bills, which can pass the Senate with a simple majority. The parliamentarian argued the proposed changes to immigration law are policy changes and the budget impact was only incidental. Democrats were looking to have provisions like a pathway to citizenship for several groups, such as DACA recipients. Senate Minority Leader Chuck, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer promised to keep pushing for the changes, writing in a statement, quote, Senate Democrats have prepared alternate proposals and will be holding additional meetings with the Senate parliamentarian in the coming days. Joining us now, co-founder of Punchbowl News, Anna Palmer. Anna, uh, it, it seems like either this is going to get put off or bogged down in details. What is the way forward for Democrats? It is not looking good for Senate Democrats when it comes to this immigration proposal. They're going to try uh, what they have been doing with uh, kind of alternate proposals. As you said, the Senate Finance Committee is going to take up potential different proposals that they can do. But truly, you're going to start to see activists once again say it's time for the filibuster to go, because right now there isn't a pathway forward. There's not 60 votes in the Senate. And unless something dramatically shifts, it's hard to see the parliamentarian allow 
this proposal to be part of reconciliation. Hey, Anna, it's Jonathan Lemire. Good morning. Great to see you uh, today. Uh, throughout this process, White House aides have told me and told you and told others that they believe that, it, that there will be ups and downs in these negotiations. But eventually, the Senate bipartisan, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the reconciliation package will both happen. The reconciliation package will surely shrink. It's not going to be $3.5 trillion, But they believe it will get done, because in part, because they don't think any single Senate Democrat or House Democrat, the margins are so slim, would want to be held responsible for submarining the agenda of a president of their own party. Now, Joe Manchin, as we know, he's from West Virginia. He caters to slightly different groups at times and has a different political calculation. But is there a moment now, is there a real belief that Manchin is going to push us to 2022, that Manchin could knock the whole thing down? Because there is fear as that if the reconciliation package moves, the, by the infrastructure thing, peace could fall apart too. Walk us through where things stand. <laughs> it is going to be a very, very complicated week on Capitol Hill. You have the Senate and the House back for the first time since July. Not only do they have to deal with what you're talking about here, with his, which is this bipartisan infrastructure package, which is supposed to be scheduled for a vote on September 27th. Uh, you know, that may slip a day right now. The speaker is going to have to make a decision here because it's up to her whether or not they can, they're going to just go forward with that. Um, or because reconciliation now is going to be at least weeks, if not months away in terms of these negotiations, in terms of kind of having to deal with both Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, their concerns around just total cost. But then there's also the real nitty gritty around some of the uh, healthcare provisions, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, that funding is going to be a very complicated. We don't know where the compromise is there. Uh, but the biggest thing, and I would just say, I, just to underscore this, is in the background, which is going to come into real focus here, is we are 10 days away from a government shutdown. They also have to raise the debt limit by the middle of October, and we do not have a clear pathway forward for how Democrats are going to do this because Senate Republicans have said, we're not going to help you. All right. Anna Palmer, thank you very much for your reporting. Let's bring in investigative reporter for the business desk at The New York Times, Jesse Drucker. And uh, his uh, latest reporting is on how accounting giants craft favorable tax rules from inside the government. And uh, this is a really interesting question, which I want to hear the answer to. Also with us, professor at Emory University School of Law, Dorothy Brown. Her latest book is entitled The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. And we can talk about the parallel between these two stories first. But Jesse, first, take us through your reporting here. Well, so basically what we found is that the big four accounting firms, uh, Ernst & Young, PwC, Deloitte, and um, KPMG, have almost an unofficial program of sorts to embed their lawyers in the Treasury Department where they work on regulations that are quite often favorable to their clients. They spend a couple of years in the government before they return back to their firms. And quite often what we found is that they return, they go into the government as associates and they return to their old firms and um, get promoted to partner where they get enormous pay raises. And um, 
this process has been, to some degree, lawyers from the private sector obviously have had a key role in the Treasury Department, you know, for since the beginning of time. But this program has really kind of become institutionalized in the last 20 years or so, um, in part with the big four firms really kind of dominating uh, the corporate tax legal profession. And we found examples of this through the Trump administration, the Obama administration, the Bush administration. You know, it's definitely kind of a bipartisan problem. So what are some of the most uh, egregious examples of this, uh, sort of blatantly obvious? And are you finding that these uh, individuals go into the government with the intention of doing this? Well, so, I mean, I'll give you one example that we've led our story with, which is we there was an attorney. So uh, in 2017, uh, the Republicans led this enormous overhaul of the U.S. tax code and what happens when Congress passes tax laws is then the Treasury Department has to come up with regulations to figure out how to implement those tax laws. And in 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, had an enormous number of big giveaways for uh, businesses and wealthy individuals. And um, one of them had to do with a new 20% deduction for various types of earners. However, the law explicitly excluded something called brokerage services. So what happened was every industry under the sun went to the Treasury Department during 2018 to try to convince them that brokerage services didn't, didn't apply to them. It didn't apply to real estate. It didn't apply to insurance. And what we found, for example, was that we had PwC representing an enormous trade association of um, real estate interests went in and met with the lobbyist for PwC, went in and met with someone who had been his colleague for years at PwC. A week later, the regulation comes out. They've carved out real estate so that they can take advantage of the tax break. A year later, the treasury official with whom he met returned to PwC, was promoted to partner. And these two attorneys now work together. They travel the country explain to the world how to take advantage of the regulations that she just wrote. But there is example after example in that vein. Wow. So, Dorothy Brown, how does this play into what you're trying to do with your book, The Whiteness of Wealth? Well, you know, what I found interesting about the story was this raises a question of what the Biden administration is going to do. And we know the answer. The story doesn't, you know, the story acknowledges that there isn't a person who's the assistant secretary for tax policy, but we know who the president is nominated. It's a law professor. So it's not somebody from an accounting firm. But my issue is that law professor has zero experience writing or thinking about systemic racism in tax law. So it's great that he's nominated a law professor and not someone from a accounting firm or a law firm who can then go back and parlay their reg writing skills. But he hasn't nominated somebody who can take his racial equity order and move it forward. Hey, Ed Luce, I know you've written about this topic recently. I would love to get your thoughts on the Democrats and what you say is that their double standard about taxes, but particularly wealth equality. Yeah, the, the, the problem, I think, in addition to you know, getting Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema's support in the Senate, the problem that uh, the Democrats face um, is that some of the proposals that are working their way through, not just the Ways and Means Committee, but in the Senate too, um, are not nearly as progressive as they look. And the sort of big issue here is they're not really taking on wealth. 
Um, wealth means taking on unrealized capital gains. That's how Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and others, that's why they're wealthy. They, they pay all, next to no income tax. But the democratic proposals are mostly framed about on in, uh, increasing income tax rates. So they miss the sort of whole wealth um, iceberg altogether. Uh, there is the additional problem of the state and local tax salt deduction, which Trump capped at $10,000, and which um, people like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi want to get rid of, um, or at least lift that cap. That's a very regressive measure. It's mostly wealthy um, Americans in those states, in those high-tax states who pay the salt tax, and getting rid of it altogether would cost, what, $91 billion. It's a massive massive hit to, to the taxpayer um, that would almost exclusively benefit the wealthiest Americans. That, that would give Republicans a line to criticize democratic hypocrisy. And I think it's, it's all to play for. It's not been decided, but it's a hugely important and largely overlooked issue. Uh, Dorothy Brown, what's your take on Ed's analysis and, and is there a better way forward? Yeah, so I completely agree. My Washington Post op-ed on Thursday talked about the House Democrats not dealing with step-up in basis, which hits the highest income Americans. It's a loophole that the president wants to close and the the Democrats in the House said, oh, we don't have the votes. Uh, and I'm like, where's LBJ when you need him, right? The, we've mm -hmm. got to do better. And the Democrats have to do better. They talk a good game, but they don't walk it. The same lobbyists that the story talked about works for Democrats as well as Republicans, and it's got to stop. Uh, New York Times investigative reporter Jesse Drucker and professor at Emory University School of Law, Dorothy Brown, thank you both. And Ed Luce, thank you as well. Coming up. Stunning images from the southern border as a surge of over 12,000 migrants, mostly from Haiti, have gathered under a bridge in Del Rio, Texas. NBC's Julia Ainsley will join us with her latest reporting. Morning Joe is coming right back. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Forty-two past the hour, live look at the White House as the sun comes up over Washington this morning. The Haitian government is asking the Biden administration to pause mass deportations of migrants back to Haiti amid a surge of Haitian migrants crossing the Rio Grande River. River. NBC News correspondent Morgan Chesky got exclusive access to the southern Texas encampment. These migrants are now calling home. These are the men, women, and children calling the shade of a Texas border bridge home. The group, mostly from Haiti, now numbers nearly 15,000 strong. They've come here with little, hoping to claim asylum, in turn launching a massive mission for state and federal agencies. 
secure the border, provide aid, and process every single person. Over the last two days, we have moved approximately 3,300 individuals. We expect that number to increase in the days ahead. Our crew granted exclusive access to visit with those whose futures remain uncertain. This woman named Evo telling us she's been here more than a week and has barely eaten. For many, their only nourishment, the food and water handouts, that can't come fast enough. Now, it has been only a matter of days since this group swelled in size underneath the bridge. But as we push this direction, you can see that there is already a small city that has essentially formed here in the shadow of this bridge. Plants from the riverbank being used in some cases as temporary roofs as children play in the shade. Everyone trying to do whatever they can to stay cool. Mass evacuations along the border began this morning. Some planes flying migrants from San Antonio direct to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Others are being bused to other processing locations, such as El Paso and Laredo. Those flown home today return to a country still reeling from a devastating earthquake. Deportation flights only expected to arrive in the coming days. Tonight, with Texas state troopers parked on the banks of the Rio Grande, the message clear. They will not be allowed to enter the United States Joining us now, NBC News correspondent Julia Ainsley. Um, Julia, what is the goal in terms of handling this situation? And did the administration see it coming? I mean, there are there have been developments in Haiti that would lead one to believe that there would be a mass migration. Yeah, I think the immediate goal is just to get as many people out from under that bridge as possible, whether that's processing them in, taking them to other facilities where they can be better cared for, get medical screenings, or as we've seen there from Morgan's piece, mass deportations. We know that there were three flights that left San Antonio yesterday, and they're expected to be even more this week as they Mm. ramp up that number, getting toward six, seven, or eight flights a day. And it's important to point out here that not all of these people are coming directly from Haiti. In fact, many of them left after the 2010 earthquake. There was a great migration out of Haiti to Central and South America. And then when a lot of the economic opportunities dried up there, particularly after the Brazil Olympics in 2016, and then, of course, being more devastated by the pandemic, many of them started to come here. Now, you ask, why didn't the administration see this coming? Perhaps they should have, in part because President Biden announced that they would be granting temporary protected status in May for Haitians who are already living here. Now, that doesn't apply to people who want to come here. But oftentimes, cartels can exploit and bend the messages of the U.S. government in order to tell people, hey, now is your chance to come in. I do think what was surprising Mm -hmm. is how many of them and where they ended up. I was just under Mm -hmm. that bridge last month, Mika. There were probably about 75 people there. Even that was surprising. But then to see the numbers go to 5,000 last Wednesday, 10,000 on Friday, then up to 15,000 this weekend. I don't think anyone would have predicted that, and especially not in that sector. You saw Raul Ortiz, the CBP chief, speaking there. He was used to be the head of that sector. He's from Del Rio. He knows that area. He's never seen anything like this. And I'm speaking to officials on the ground who are processing people and said they haven't seen anything like this in 25 years. It's truly historic. And they just didn't have the resources ready to accommodate this number, both from a law enforcement perspective, but also from a health perspective, just being able to take Mm -hmm. care of this mass number of people that's coming in with so very little, Mika. 
Hey, Julia, it's Jonathan Lemire. Great to see you uh, again. Uh, with this huge surge of Haitian migrants, but walk us through how it plays what, where things stand elsewhere in the border with other groups coming. The summer's winding down, right? So that's a belief that, that usually as the weather gets a little cooler, more migrants try to make those trips, try to get across the border. How is possibly the administration of these border uh, facilities going to be able to be able to handle such an, such an influx if it keeps being steady, uh, even if there are deportations here? We saw how overwhelmed they were back in the spring. Well, Jonathan, all eyes are on Mexico and what the Mexican government might do to just even keep people from coming to the U.S. border. That is the reason why we actually saw a slight decrease going from July into August, still at 20-year highs. It was went from 210,000 crossing in July to 208,000 in August. But that's a time where typically you would see the numbers go up and they actually went down. And so there was a hope that perhaps we would continue to see these numbers go down. But really, a lot of it has to do not with law enforcement, with diplomacy. What can the U.S. government do to work with the Mexican government to intervene to try to provide any kind of relief for people before they even make that journey or cross Mexico? Uh, We've already seen the vice president try to carry out her diplomatic efforts with leaders in Central America. What can they do before before these people even come to our border? That's what they're trying to do. But a big reason Mm -hmm. why we've seen so many Haitians come is because eventually they just maxed out the capacity of the Mexican government to the point that there was no enforcement. These people were often getting on buses that were authorized by the Mexican government to come to our border. So right now, a lot of it depends on what Mexico might do. And I think that there's a lot of back channeling going on right now to prevent that very problem and to prevent this from happening with other populations elsewhere along the border in a way that would catch this government so much by surprise. NBC's Julia Ainsley, thank you so much for your reporting this morning. And still ahead, we're going to be joined by former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, as the FDA and CDC decide whether to follow an advisory panel's recommendation against the rollout of COVID booster shots for most Americans. Plus, how Republican Governor Tate Reeves of Mississippi is defending his state's COVID response despite having the highest number of deaths per capita from the virus. Morning Joe is coming right back. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.